0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 18th, 2023, uh, Saturday for once. We usually don't do weekend shows, but we have a special guest. Um, Looking at the headlines is rather depressing today. The Financial Times leads with American accusations of Russia committing war crimes against humanity um, in Ukraine, articulated by Kamala Harris at the Munich Security Conference. The Wall Street Journal um, concurs, leading with the same story. Uh, There's all sorts of other stories at the Munich Security Conference, including the journal story about China's top diplomat, criticizing the United States as two sides seek bilateral talks. One wonders what exactly bilateral talks mean. Meanwhile, the New York Times, which we all rely on, is also reporting from Munich, suggesting that Western leaders have pledged support for Ukraine as long as necessary. One of the authors of that Times piece is my guest today, Roger Cohen, uh, one of the New York Times' most... um, Iconic foreign correspondence. Uh, He has a new book out, uh, An Affirming Flame Meditations on Life and Politics. It's an interesting book. It it combines uh, a number of his great columns over the years uh, with uh, a 20,000 word uh, essay on the state of the world. Roger is joining us from Munich, where he's covering this conference for the New York Times. Roger, state of the world, how depressed are you at the moment on uh, on February 23, 20, uh, 2023? Actually, Hi, February 18th. I've got two threes on my mind. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, we're coming up to the February twenty four anniversary, of course, such as it is of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that's very much uh, the subject on everybody's minds here in Munich. Um, a year ago, the United States, in the person of Secretary of State Blinken and others, was saying, the war is going to happen. It's coming. It's days away. And uh, European powers remain skeptical, as did Volodymyr Zelensky, the uh, Ukrainian president, who's proved such a brave leader since then. It's hard to escape an impression of a fractured and quite treacherous world here. In my book, I use the phrase, the age of undoing, uh, undoing of, of the rule of law, of uh, uh, basic articles of the United Nations Charter. And, uh, you know, the Russians were, were always here. Um, they were a provocative, turbulent presence. And the idea of the security conference was not just a meeting of friends but bracing dialogue between rivals that could produce good outcomes the iranians used to be here no russians no iranians one senior chinese official who essentially mocked the united states for shooting down that supposed chinese spy balloon so the picture here is uh, one of western unity yes vows to support Ukraine for as long as necessary, but also of a world of growing great power rivalry, where those great powers are talking to one another less and less.
0: Your The title of your book is taken from uh, one of W.H. Auden's greatest poems, September 1, 1939, which he begins, uh, I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain and af- afraid, as the Clever hopes expire of a low, dishonest decade. Reading that again today was rather chilling. You talk at the beginning, I think your first sentence of your book is to underestimate hate is easy. Um, Are we back in September 1939, potentially, Roger? Particularly, you're talking to us from Munich, which of course represents (laughs) one of the nadirs of Western foreign policy in history.
1: Yeah, where Chamberlain claimed that he'd secured peace in our time, and we know what how that panned out. Um, tens of millions of dead within the next several years, and um, the partial annihilation of European Jewry by the Nazi regime of Adolf Hitler. Um, are we back there? No, I don't think we're back there. Uh, obviously, I was sufficiently struck by some of the analogies to use uh, to, to quote Gordon's poem for my title and in my epigraph. Um, we are living in a world where there's been an explicit threat from a nuclear power, Russia, from President Vladimir Putin uh, to use nuclear weapons, um, possibly a small tactical nuke of some kind. He's retreated a little bit from that, but... I think it's a different world once um, a leader says that. Um, We're not in the 20th century. I don't believe a a new cold war is coming. The extent of uh, global interdependency and of the links established through technology. I don't think you can get closed societies like uh, the Soviet Union, for example, or even Mao's China, and I think all that interlocking, all these interlocking mechanisms are uh, a potential source of safeguarding um, the world from another cataclysm. Um, We had two such cataclysms in the 20th century. I think the world's more dangerous, more combustible than at any other time in my lifetime and um, we need to be vigilant. Um, I quote the Shimborska poem at the beginning of my essay, at the beginning of the book, uh, on hatred. And we've learned in the United States, I think during the presidency of Donald Trump, he launched his campaign by describing all our Mexican immigrants as, quote, rapists, unquote. And that propelled him to the top uh, of the race um, to become the Republican candidate and subsequently to the presidency. So, and Trump had a very... Acute understanding of uh, how to get the blood up. How to get the blood up. That's how ruthless nationalist, xenophobic politicians operate. They find scapegoats. And uh, to underestimate the human proclivity for hatred, to find relief from the pain or agony of life by joining some tribe uh, affirming hatred of some scapegoat some other pe- people I think I think that's trying um, to estimate that is extremely extremely dangerous um, you recall Ben Franklin in Philadelphia uh, in the at the birth of the United States um, a republic if you can keep it when asked what form of government had been adopted um, This assumption that liberal democracy, the rule of law, open societies, open markets, free markets, would inevitably spread after the end of the Cold War has proved dead wrong. That is not what we've seen in recent years with the spread of autocracies and with the spread of rightist political movements within our own Western societies. And that reflects great failings and great complacency on the part, in my view, of Western elites. So, yeah, it's a more menacing world, but not yet the world that Auden was describing in 1939, and I hope it will not become that, obviously.
0: Yeah, when I was reading the Auden Auden, Auden, Auden poem, um, the, the, the words that came to mind are, as the clever hopes expire of a low, dishonest decay, you're not, of course, alone in writing about this low, dishonest decade. I had a Martin Wolf, the FT uh, writer, sort of the FT's version in some ways of, of, of uh, Roger Cohen on the show. He has a new book out, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. And then uh, next month, i got your New York Times chorus, uh, colleague, Thomas Edsall, The Point of No Return, American Democracy at the Crossroads. The book contains a lot of essays on America. Tell me a little bit, Roger, you were born in in South Africa, you were educated in the UK, you spent your life peripatetically traveling around the world as a foreign correspondent, but you seem to have a particular intellectual or or emotional affinity to the United States. Is that fair?
1: I'd say that's fair, yeah. Um, I was actually born in London and then To South African parents, and then whisked back to South Africa at the age of two months. And uh, spent my infancy there before my dad, uh, who was a physician and was actually the dean of the last residency at Wits University in Johannesburg, that was still admitting black students,
0: when the apartheid... And you write a wonderfully moving essay in the book, uh, uh, To Your Father, who sounded like a remarkable man.
1: Yeah, he was a very special man in many ways. Anyway, he could not stand it when he could no longer admit black students to that residency. And so the family left for the UK, where I mainly grew up uh, and uh, was educated. Um, I then went to Paris, uh, was teaching English and studied writing and was hired by Reuters and left the UK in 1980 and, and became an American citizen about... Okay. Uh, soon, twenty years ago. Uh, yeah, I found a kind of freedom in the United States. Look, we all know what a flawed country the United States is, but what is America? America is churn. America is constant reinvention, and I've not lost hope that that will continue. That uh, for all the deep problems um, going right back to slavery and going right back to America's continues continuing problems with race and with racism, uh, all the identity politics that have increasingly divided the country, the great divide between cities, the metropolises and the heartland, huge fights over values. Uh, I uh, you know, maybe it's just, uh, you know, maybe I have naive hopes having chosen to become an American but I still believe, you know, and we came very close. We came very close on January 6th uh, to to complete disaster. Uh, a, a president, uh, Donald Trump, um, exhorting a mob uh, to overturn the democratic process, to put an end to American democracy, and um, and there are still a lot of people, you know, in the United States who. Uh, believe that Biden's victory was the great lie. So we face huge problems, most fundamentally, any shared concept of truth. But, yeah, the space of America, the potential of America uh, as a Jew coming from the UK where, you know, if somebody made a comment about the stinginess of Jews or the shape of a nose, the general practice was to pretend that you hadn't heard it. There's no limit to what Jews could achieve in Britain, but a degree, you know, being called an effing yid at, at school, uh, the idea that one could be exuberant about one's Jewishness. And I'm not a religious Jew, but I'm a Jew. I mean, that, that, that is my identity. Um, uh, the idea that I discovered in New York and the US more generally that, um, you know, Philip Roth talks about Jews in a whisper in Britain. And I think I would concur with that. So that was another element in. Uh, in this feeling that in New York in particular and in in the United States in general, I had found the place that, you know, Robert Frost writes that, I'm not sure I'm getting exactly right, but home's the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. And I think I found something of that feeling in, in the US, just a feeling that this was my natural home.
0: You dedicate the book to Sarah Hull Cleveland. Um, do you? You don't live in the United States, though. Do you? Uh, do you live? Um, I live. You... Well,
1: Sarah and I live between. I live in Paris. I'm the Paris bureau chief of, of the New York Times. Sarah is a professor at uh, Columbia. Prevent. Right. So that's what Paris. I was thinking. Do, do you right commute or... backwards and yeah. forwards? Well Well, she. Yeah. I mean, she actually. She's probably come to Paris more often than you know, I try to get to the US when I can. And I'll be there next week, of course, for the launch of the book. She's actually been nominated uh, by the State Department to be the American judge, one of the 15 judges on the International Court of Justice in The Hague. But that is, uh, you have to win a vote in the UN General Assembly and in the Security Council. And that vote will take place in November. So she's campaigning. So it's possible that come uh, next year, the beginning of next year, she will in fact be in The Hague, which of course is, uh, you know, would feel compared to New York like the uh, uh, I don't know the 13th town of Paris um, in terms of proximity so we'll see what happens with all that but yes, I am based in Paris but I consider my home to be in the United States I have, uh, Sarah has a home in uh in harlem in new york and i have a house in colorado uh
0: the book uh, is already getting good reviews uh, uh publisher weekly uh dis- described your skills and an observer of and demystifier of complex geopolitical events uh, the result is a master class in opinion writing um but the book is two roger cohen's it's the roger cohen of 800 word thought pieces for the New York Times, and the Roger Cohen of a 20,000-word introduction. Um, which Roger Cohen do you prefer in terms of craft? It's a very interesting question, Andrew. Um,
1: you know, uh, Oscar Wilde's famous comment about apologizing to a woman for having written such a long letter because... Quote, he didn't have time to write a short letter. Exactly. The the 800-word limit on a column was often hard to uh, abide by. Um, At the same time, it was a tremendous stimulus to remove every extraneous element from what you're trying to say. And I think every journalist should try to do that. There should not be a word that is not needed. And... uh, There's a great, uh, you know, the need for pithiness, succinctness, and of course, an idea. You need an idea for a column. And people say, well, you write two columns a week or one. You know, that's nothing. But you try having one original idea or even two a week. It's not that easy. And I think a column, a good column, a really good column often needs one idea that gets you to about 500 words and then a kind of twist that takes you. Down to the end of it. Um, so, and the extraordinary freedom of a column. Nobody ever asked me in the 13, 14 years I did it um, what I was about to write, why I was going somewhere. You know, I just I just wrote what I wanted to write. I mean, if I'd completely ignored a French election or the US election, some people might have begun to wonder. But um, but yeah, you're perceptive in the sense. Well, I'm sure you're perceptive in multiple and infinite ways, but I'm thinking uh, here. Can you're I cut can can you? On will get you everywhere. No, I mean, there are two Roger Cohns in the sense that I do, I do love long form. Um, I like narrative and descriptive writing and of course this is your
0: fourth book the first uh, you've written a book about your mom you wrote a book about your time in sarajevo one about soldiers and slaves so you're not unfamiliar with this form
1: yeah um but even in general i used i used to write a lot for the new york times magazine i haven't much of late uh or indeed at all for several years now but um I like development of character and I probably I would say that as a journalist I've been most interested in people and specifically in the way the psyche of one or two or a collection of individuals can reflect and illuminate the psyches of nations and of national behaviour and the reasons the reasons things happen I, I covered the war in bosnia and you know bosnia was a war that erupted you know much as a person can break apart by trying to suppress memory painful memory in particular for too long it's a very dangerous thing to do so nations yes hearts gone brutal so nations can can break apart when suppressed memory rises to the surface and that's what happened when the Communist clamp was taken off after the end of the Cold War in Yugoslavia and many bitter, angry memories of World War II when Yugoslavia had also fallen apart came to the surface. So, so yes, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm deeply interested in that, in, in, in writing in those ways. I chose to write my book about Bosnia through the stories of four families who as i've just described were blown apart mixed families where you know you had a bosnian muslim married to serve or, or whatever and they'd been blown apart by the war and i, I found yeah that. i love that
0: book i lived in uh, sarajevo between 82 and 83 so Did just you? Before okay right. before yeah. the war so it really brought it home you now when i reading uh, your your writing on your own writing you describe um the short form is exquisite torture. And it brought to mind another Cohen, <laughs> Leonard Cohen, uh, his famous song, Hallelujah, when he said, your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. She tied you to a kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair. And from your lips, she drew the Hallelujah. Is there a, an element of masochism? Roger, which attracts you to this short form because the exquisite torture is not fun at the time, is it often?
1: I don't think exquisite torture is it, is confined to column writing. I think I think <laughs> writing in general is exquisite torture. But um, short form yeah, in I mean, particular. I mean, the, the, so the thing hard. is, you know, the, the there are two two sides to the scale. Uh, you know, the the exquisite torture is offset by the unmatchable and deep pleasure and reward of of writing something you you think might actually be worth something. I'm not sure why I'm getting emotional, but I am. Uh, uh, Forgive me. Um, It's it's a struggle. It's a battle. Um, But if you believe you have something to say, you have to go through it. I mean, everyone has something that makes them tick. Uh, And I guess what makes me tick ultimately is that.
0: Your most emotional book, I think, was The Girl from Human Street, a Jewish odyssey, a Jewish family odyssey about your mother. Um, You write, there's always, I get the sense from writing, maybe I'm overdoing it, but when I read your stuff, and particularly this book, there is. A little bit of the ghost of your mom in this, isn't there?
1: Yeah, she's always there. I mean, my mother was. Um, I was just thinking, actually, in the next year, it'll be a quarter century since she died. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, she was she was bipolar, manic depressive, and she was intermittently suicidal. And uh, um, and I set out to try to understand. She was. I mean, I've been very concerned with the issue of belonging in my writing and the issue of uh, uprooting. Perhaps that's not surprising. My family has moved uh, every generation for the last several generations, uh, initially from Lithuania to South Africa, then in my immediate family's case, from South Africa to Britain. Some went to Israel, some went elsewhere. And then I moved from Britain to the United States. Um and migration moving is, is possibility, it's, it's potential. It's, it's endlessly stimulating, but it's also loss. It's loss and loss and loss. And, and the quest to belong, the quest to feel at home, I think is a very fundamental human urge. And uh, my mother was uprooted from a fairly close-knit Jewish community in South Africa into what was still sort of post-war Britain, chilly, foggy, cold, wet, you know, putting coins in a meter to get hot water, living in a small apartment while her hard-driving husband uh, pursued a career as a, as a physician. Um, uh, he was an expert but became a professor at Guy's Hospital and a world expert on malaria. So, yeah, the um, uh, the loss of my mother into psychiatric institutions when I was two, uh, her suicide attempts, one very serious when I was 22, she survived by a miracle, yeah, they marked my life and they... Um,
0: Left, have, for they, people watching, here we have a photo of uh, Roger's mother, June Cohen, with Roger when he was a young boy. Yeah, my, yeah.
1: No, it left. Um, uh, it left. Uh, you know, left a melancholy and, and an emptiness um, inside me that I think I've only rather late in life grappled with fully and come to recognize and accept. Um,
0: Do you think, Roger, that there's a sort of... You you say you've always written about belonging of one kind or another. There's a Homeric quality to this in the sense that the people who best write about belonging don't belong, that they have to essentially sacrifice their belonging in order to write about it.
1: Yeah, there's something about that. I think I, I have a phrase early in an affirming flame about... you know, the writer, I mean, since I can remember, I've, you know, you're, you're in and you're out. You're, you're a participant and a, a protagonist and you're an onlooker. There's a, there's a side of your mind, of your brain that is, that is always looking on, looking at, looking at what's going on around you, but looking, also looking at you know, what you're actually involved in with, uh, with an outsider's eye. I think that first struck me when I moved to France, uh, moved to Paris. Um, I was at Oxford University and I ended up studying history in French and that enabled me to go to France for a year as an assistant d'anglais uh, teaching English in a lycée in the Paris suburbs. And I became aware that as I became fluent in French and assumed a French identity, uh, that there was something I liked about that. You know, you have a slightly different identity in whatever language you use, and also I was an onlooker on French society. And then, of course, I ended up as a foreign correspondent before I became a columnist. And um, yeah, that's my nature. I think I.
0: I'm a note-taker. You're an unbelonger. Let's end on a positive note, Roger. (laughs) You're going to run. You note that the book is uh, describing what you call our age of undoing. So let's try and figure out how we can undo, so to speak, our age of undoing. Uh, You wrote an interesting New York Times uh, piece uh, last month on Davos, the collective elite of the West, meet, And you wrote, and I think very profoundly if the old is gone it sounds like marx in an odd way if the old is gone the new order is not yet born power and and let's just say that again if the old is gone the new order is not yet born i think that's what um that's what orden was talking about also in 1939 how are we going to put back together the old in a new way I'm not sure, Andrew. I mean, you know, well, I, if you don't know, Roger, I, who does?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I am worried. I mean, it's not just the geopolitical things we've been talking about. It's also looking at people gazing at their phones, uh, completely absorbed in this <laughs> world, and the feeling that that because ultimately, you know, we depend on community. We depend on the comments. We depend on uh, both on the international scale and the national scale on being able to talk to each other, on being able to engage in dialogue, even on difficult subjects. And I think the atomization of society is not just about geopolitical trends. It's about, uh, you know, our, you know, it's remote work. It's our fracturing. And it's our self-absorption. So what do we do? Um, I think we have to find ways to, you know, encourage community. And, uh, you know, in school we have to, you know, try to teach kids to read intelligently. We have to be aware of the dangers of hatred and uh, try to pursue tolerance, understanding. God knows we know where World War leads. We have two examples of it. Um, it would be utter insanity to to return to that, so... Um, and I am, you know, I, I come from South Africa. I mean, I spent my entire childhood and adolescence listening to my relatives, saying the cataclysm was coming. It was inevitable. White South Africans, all four million of them, would have to leave. Um, the 40 million blacks of South Africa, black citizens of South Africa, would rise up to claim what was rightfully theirs, and... and uh, and then we got leadership and statesmanship in the person, above all, of of Mandela.
0: Uh, I am. Yeah, there's the spirit of Mandela in the book. And let's end with the end of the uh, the Auden poem, um, where you take the title of the book. Um, may I? composed like them of eros and of dust beleaguered by the same negation and despair show an affirming flame what is an affirming flame roger why would you call the book that and what does it mean
1: an affirming flame is refusing to be consumed by ideas of vengeance of somehow righting the wrongs of the past through violence Uh, this was mandela's realization i am the master of my fate I am the captain of my soul even after 27 years in a cell and affirming affirming what what binds us human intelligence beauty uh, and thinking about not our, not the past but our, our children and, and other and grandchildren and how we can make the world. Still, despite everything, a better, more tolerant, more open place in which human dignity spreads as widely as possible. That's what every human being wants, dignity, to be treated with respect.